with me, let's fly, let's fly. All right, and for some for some further commentary on the story of the famous Gimli Glider, we'll go to one of our uh, our fellow hosts here at KDVS, Ron Glick, who's the host of Speaking in Tongues every Friday at five o'clock, uh, has consented to join us and give give some offer some commentary. Ron, are you there? Hi, Doug. You know, actually, I should note you're now you we've now completed the cycle on this program. We've had every single public affairs show host on. Wow, it's an honor. We should point out to our listeners, I don't know whether you, this comes out in your show very often, you you are a science teacher. I am. Uh, I have a day job as a secondary science teacher in the uh, public schools of California. Which makes you a perfect guy to offer some further commentary on the embarrassing story of the Canadian 767 that was miscalculated with the issue between kilograms, pounds, and liters. Well, you know, we find this all the time, and yet it's it's only here in... because Canada is now completely metric. Right. The United States is the only country that refuses to go metric in the industrialized world. Well, our older listeners will recall all the highway signs in California in the 70s used to have the distances in miles and in, kilo, and in kilometers, but during the Reagan era, for some reason, they decided that kilometers were just, and the whole metric system was just some kind of commie plot, and it went by the wayside. But, you know, we have gone metric. If you, if you look on your odometers, uh, it gives you kilometers per hour as well as miles per hour. You look on a, a package, it'll give you the grams, or a, a soda can, it'll give you the milliliters. The big thing I wanted to ask about, there is a precedent about using the wrong units and having disaster ensue. Yes. The one I always think of is the Mars Polar Lander. Yeah, tell our listeners a little bit about that. December 3rd, 1999, to be exact, just as the satellite was supposed to land on Mars uh, near the pole looking for water, it lost contact. And after some examination... It turned out that the builders of the satellite sent the information to the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena in English units instead of metric units. The people in, at the Jet Propulsion Lab just assumed the information they were getting was in metric units because everything they do is in metric units. Right. And there was a young engineer, I forget his name. I'm not sure it ever came out what his name was. By the time it was over, his name was Mud. <laughs> Instead of using miles, they used kilometers and they crashed it. I thought it was they used like, they used, they were expecting Newton meters and they used foot pounds or something like that. Or it, it was, it was on the, my understanding was the rocket was supposed to fire at a certain thrust level, and it wound up thrusting way wrong. Well, if, they, if they, it was supposed to fire at one altitude, if the guy sent it and said fire at this altitude in miles, and they interpreted that as kilometers, it would only be 0.6 as high. Yeah. And so it wouldn't have had enough time to decelerate. Well, at any rate, it came down to the fact they thought it was in metric, and it was in English units, and a $125 million crash, loss of a, of a valuable spacecraft. And a, and a couple of years. Right. Of time before you could send another. Right. Took till 2001 to go back. It's not that these places are close by and easy to get to. 
I guess the punchline to all this, Ron, is, is is it doesn't hurt to calculate something, you know, just one more time to make sure. Well, I, I think the, the, the issue is, like I tell my students, you know, write down your units after the digits. Just, just to be sure. Just to be sure, because you don't know. Otherwise, how is someone supposed to know what your units are? A good point. If someone had followed that advice, we'd probably be much richer with information from Mars. We would know where the water is. <laughs> Ron Glick, well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Come on again. Always a pleasure. All right. Bye. I think we're going to close out today's show with three uh, quite, uh, quite different items. The first of which is the, uh, the, the hubbub over redistricting. According to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, the current system is rigged to benefit the interests of those in office, not the interests of those who put them there, and we must reform it. Dan Walters in the B noted that, uh, you know, that's, that's well said, and that the bipartisan gerrymandering that goes on renders the November elections largely meaningless. Disenfranchises independent voters, makes it easier for special interest groups to influence party primaries and drives a wider ideologic wedge in the capital by making it more difficult for moderates of either party to win seats. The gerrymandering that, that's gone on is disgraceful. In the last November election, 51 out of California's 53 congressional seats were won by landslide margins. But Dan Walters is skeptical about uh, the, uh, the constitutional amendment that's been introduced by Assembly Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Walters praised a previous study done after the 1990 census where uh, Republican Governor Pete Wilson and the Democratic-controlled legislature uh, worked out an idea where um, certain advisors would draft a plan of reasonably compa compact districts that followed city and county boundaries as much as possible and adhered to the minority protective provisions of the Federal Voting Rights Act. Well, under this new idea, there's a provision that Walters was wondering about. It said that, uh, quote, a level of competitiveness that would result in a difference of no more than seven percentage points between the number of voters in each district who are registered with the two largest political parties. To which he responded with a, huh? By making partisan competitiveness a goal unto itself and defining it as a seven-point differential, McCarthy's measure would appear to enhance prospects for Republicans to win legislative majorities. We also want to look back at a News & Review article about uh, the Republican Party in California attempting to break up California's 55 electoral votes into districts like they do in two other states, which would, uh, which would be a tremendous advantage for Republicans running for president. And by the way, the Republicans in the other states have no interest in this. It's only in Democratic-running California that they want to bust up the majority and introduce more democracy to the process. And, uh, boy, speaking of bad politics, this story of, uh, of the fake... Press Corps credentials given to Jeff Gannon is getting weirder and weirder. I recommend all of you to go on the web and Google this Jeff Gannon story and see what, uh, see what pops up. You know, a guy that we, we really should bring on to the public affairs lineup here on, on, on KDVS would be uh, America's, who's become America's foremost blogger, Keith Olbermann. Olbermann's been following a lot of political stories with great incisiveness in the past uh, past few months, and you know he we need to bring him to you, the listeners here locally. 
Perhaps it was Olbermann, perhaps it was CNN, I'm not sure, but someone put together a string of, of Jeff Gannon's greatest hits. Actually, it was Olbermann. It was on a video montage on his show. Uh, some of the questions he actually asked during presidential press conferences. May 10th, 2004, Jeff Gannon, who, by the way, had no history of being a reporter before being granted press credentials to, to you know join the White House press corps. May 10th. Question. In your denunciation of the Abu Ghraib photos, you've, you've, you've used words like sickening, disgusting, and reprehensible. Will you have any adjectives left to adequately describe the pictures from Saddam's rape rooms and torture chambers? And will America ever see those images? Scott McClellan. I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff, because the president talks about that often. July 10th, 2004. Last Friday, the Senate Intelligence Committee released a report that shows that Ambassador Joe Wilson lied when he said his wife didn't put him up to the mission to Niger. The British inquiry into their own pre-war intelligence yesterday concluded the president's 16 words were well-founded. Doesn't Joe Wilson owe the president in America an apology for his deception and his own intelligence failure? Boy, you know, it's, it's hard to know where to begin with a question like that. Such propaganda and such spin do, do all those clauses in that uh, in that question represent people of course are speculating that Carl Rove has apparently showed this uh, this guy whose whose history is that of being a male prostitute in Washington DC some of these files on Joe Wilson April 1st question 2004 asked by Gannon at a press conference I'd like to comment on the angry mob that surrounded Carl Rove's house on Sunday they chanted and pounded on the windows till the D.C. police and Secret Service were called in. The protest was organized by the National People's Action Coalition, whose members received taxpayer funds, as well as financial support from groups including Teresa Hines Carey's Tides Foundation. Scott McClellan. I would just say that, one, we appreciate and understand concerns that people may have. I would certainly hope that people would respect the families of White House staff. Now, if you go on the web, you'll see a CNN interview with uh, Mr. Gannon, a real name, uh, James D. Guckert. He seems like he's not quite, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer. After this story broke, someone went on the web and found a website <laughs> where Mr. Gallon, Mr. Gannon's talent as a male prostitute were being evaluated as some sort of quality control measure by people who had hired him. His talents as a male escort and, uh, and partner were praised by the man who noted that he was caring, assertive, and with stamina that could have gone on all night long. Apparently, Mr. Gannon was, was better at this than he was at reporting. We note in closing the show the passing of a couple of legends of, um, of American letters, playwright Arthur Miller and gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. Perhaps Miller's most famous work is Death of a Salesman, which is regarded as, uh, as an American masterpiece. In my uh, junior year in high school, I was walking across the front lawn to, to uh, attend a performance of one of Miller's plays, The Crucible, and was startled to look across the lawn and see Arthur Miller with an aide walking across. He made an appearance. He was, he was local, heard the play was going to be performed, and came by and said hello to the cast, something that, uh, that thrilled uh, all the participants. 
you know, I, I don't recall whether he, he stayed for the play, but uh, this will give me an excuse to check with some old high school pals. Not that we need to know that, but I'm, I'm kind of curious now. And uh, Hunter S. Thompson um, is another giant of American letters credited with pioneering new journalism. He dubbed it gonzo journalism, in which the writer makes himself an essential component of the story. I thought of Thompson about a month ago when I looked at the, the Sacramento News and Review and saw an ad for a product called Ebocaine, allegedly uh, some sort of um, detox medication. I don't know much about it, but uh, I was curious about the name because as I recall, Hunter S. Thompson writing in uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail had, or I think originally for Rolling Stone, had, a, had written that um, Senator Edmund Muskie had been taking a drug which he labeled Ebocaine, which was accounting for his zombie-like performances on the campaign stump. Other reporters didn't realize he was speaking tongue-in-cheek and started reporting that apparently Senator Edmund Muskie is uh, on, on some new medication. I'm dying to read a quote from my favorite, Hunter, Hunter Thompson's Hell's Angels, but, uh, but we're out of time, so we're going to have to close with, uh, with a note from uh, Tom Wolfe, uh, sent to us by uh, Dr. Andy Jones. Tom Wolfe, I think, is the greatest practitioner of new journalism, but uh, he had some very kind words to say about his colleague, Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, he noted that after Hell's Angels had made him, uh, made him fairly well-known, well, Wolf called it a brilliant investigative journalism of the hazardous sort, written in a style and voice no one had seen or heard before. He cold called Hunter in California after that, noted that um, Thompson generously gave him not only his recollections, but also the audio tapes he'd recorded in that first uh, famous alliance of hippies, uh, the Ken Kesey and gang, and the Hells Angels outlaw motorcycle gang. And I think this anecdote recounted by uh, Wolf uh, <laughs> captures Thompson pretty well. Uh, by way of a thank you, Tom Wolf invited Thompson to lunch next time he was in New York. Noted that as they were walking toward the Brazilian coffee house restaurant, Thompson ducked into the Goldberg Marine Supply Store. Wolf said a sixth sense told him not to ask him what was inside the bag he'd come out with. And in the restaurant, he kept it on top of the table. Finally, he said, the fool in me became so curious I had to ask, what's in the bag, Hunter? I got something in there that would clear out this restaurant in 20 seconds, said Thompson. He began opening the bag. No, never mind, I said. I believe you. Show me later. From the bag, he produced what looked like a travel-sized can of shaving foam. He uncapped it and pressed down. There ensued the most violently brain-piercing sound I had ever heard. It didn't clear out the Brazilian coffee house, it froze it. The place became so quiet you could hear an old-fashioned timer clock ticking in the kitchen. Chunks of churrasco gaucho remained impaled on forks in midair. A bartender mixing a sidecar became a statue holding a shaker with both hands just below his chin. Honey was slipping the little can back into the paper bag. It was a marine distress signaling device. Audible for 20 miles over water. Thank you to our producer, Mr. Edward McMillan, for that, uh, that fine bit of music with which to end today's program. This was Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for Todd. We'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock for our special program, 
about bovine spongiform encephalopathy, better known as mad cow disease, and um, you know what potential health threat this may represent to all of us. 